We talking rom-com, we talking action, we talking drama and movie classics. Whatever you want, yo, we have it. Cause we talking movies on a podcast. So I married a film critic. So I married a film critic. So I married a film critic. Hey honey, I just wanna so talk I about the movie like casually. Critic. You don't have to so bring up married- the cinematography honestly let's just talk about like how the characters were fun married a film critic so i married a film critic so i married a welcome to so i married a film critic a discussion between a professional film critic and lecturer and me his wife of 20 years who just likes to watch movies for fun i'm your co-host julia this is barry film critic hello everyone and tonight we decided to rewatch the 1997 Julia Roberts film, My Best Friend's Wedding. Well, it was directed by P.J. Hogan, but sure, Julia Roberts is the star of this film. <laughs> she didn't direct it. This is from Australian director Wonderkin P.J. Hogan, uh, who, pre- who prior to this had made a movie called Muriel's Wedding, which is a combination of wedding comedy, Tony Collette, and the, the sweet songs of ABBA. I think the first time I was ever aware of ABBA as a group was because of that movie. I, I just, you know, I, I grew up with the Bee Gees and Donna Summer. I, I really wasn't up on ABBA growing up. And then Muriel's Wedding comes out. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I didn't realize this was like a thing, that there was like this Swedish supergroup named ABBA that was like kind of took over the 70s. So between Muriel's Wedding and your dad... You really got, like, the in on ABBA. I feel more than indoctrinated into the cult of ABBA now. And I'm also aware of a musical called Chess, which they had a hand in writing. So, yes, I'm, I am ABBA'd out. Okay, well, let's talk about a film that doesn't have any ABBA songs in Thank it. Thank God. It's like the only thing that this movie doesn't have is ABBA. <laughs> All right, so 1997, did you see this film in theaters? I saw it opening day, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, it was a summer movie. It was a big deal. Um, this is one of those, it, you know, like, like, like every summer, it seems like it always happens where you always have this glut of movies that are strictly like for the guys, these big action movie sequels and special effects films and whatnot. This was the summer, this is 97, so this is the summer of Men in Black, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, The Fifth Element, a lot of guy movies, yeah. Con Air, Face Off. And studios were like, Oh, wow. Women go to movies? It happens every single year. It's always like, oh, well, well what do we have uh, for the female demographic? Seems like women uh, aren't really going to... Women go to everything. It's it's such a stupid thing. Of course, women are going to movies, but like, it's always such an oversight when you don't program for a major demographic. It happened the summer that uh, The Devil Wears Prada, for example, when that came out. Nobody thought that movie would connect, but guess what? It was the only film for women that entire summer. So, of course, it cleaned up. And this was a similar situation again like this was coming out like right on the heels of con air and face off and surprise surprise it was a huge blockbuster um it was promoted really well um we'll talk more about the history of it a little later i mean this movie had a really rocky road to the to the big screen um but uh, yeah i mean it was it was seen as julia roberts big comeback film because she had a bunch of films prior that did not connect and um yeah i was there opening day with my mom Aw, your mom. I must have seen this in theaters, although I don't remember. But, you know, I was 17, so of course I went and saw this. I don't know. Um, All right, let's get into it, because there's a lot to talk about. Let's talk about this opening number. (laughs) So the opening credits open up with... And hoping, and thinking, and praying. That, that scene. (laughs) 
Thank you. Thank you for those who have not seen this film. So, yeah, it opens with this musical number. And I got to say, in 1997, it was re- it was refreshing. I really loved it in 97. Like, this is different. I was not expecting this. This is, you know, and this is that age where they weren't really making musicals other than Evita. So it was like, oh, that's cool. It's a musical number. Open the movie. Now, I no longer feel that way about this opening. <laughs> well, okay. I used to love this opening and watching it with you the other night. I was like, ooh, this is kind of cringy. It's embarrassing now. And wh- one of the reasons is, I mean, every subsequent romantic comedy, everything from I mean, God, to even like the proposal, how many times have we had to suffer through these romantic comedies where they end with a dance-off where every character in the movie is like dancing in sync to a number as the end credits roll? Okay, this movie, though, feels more like a musical to me than it ever did. Yeah, I think, I think P.J. Hogan kind of secretly wanted to make it a musical, um, which is fine, except not only is it painfully corny but you just know you just know the year this came out and subsequently i'll bet you there are hundreds of weddings all over the world who are like okay clink clinky clinky on the glass okay everybody me and the bridesmaids we have a little something special for you <laughs> and they perform this freaking scene and people are like oh my god how many more minutes is this how many times have you and I gone to a wedding and they'll do something like that and it'll be like this giant in-joke that maybe three people find hilarious and the rest of her going, man, this is this is no. not going to hold up when they okay. look at the, the video. I've literally never seen anybody perform this particular song at their wedding, first of all. I think an, a bigger thing would be for the bride and groom to like choreograph a very elaborate dance like right. at their reception. And I feel like that's a bigger thing. That's one of my favorite jokes period from the office when Jim and Pam yeah like Jim becomes aware that there's this online viral video that happens at a wedding That's and my he's like favorite. and yeah. he says like he's like I know Michael's going to do this I know they're going to do this so we have to come up with a plan B because obviously they're going to do this and of course they're completely right because that's just the thing it, like as soon as something I tell you as soon as that stupid song on the radio shut up and dance started playing the radio I'm like oh I know this is going to pop up at so many weddings <laughs> there's going to be all these like, this choreographed number. I love that song. <laughs> I hate that song. And I envision myself sitting at a wedding, like watching the brides and groomsmaids, like, oh gosh, insufferable. Did you say groomsmaids? Groomsmaids. That's a new thing. Oh, did you just I make come, that up? I, I, I synergize. Oh, okay. Yeah. So okay. you want to cut down the number of people in the wedding, you make groomsmaids. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. Just like a gender neutral like well, you, bridal you, party. You, you blend it. You know, on top it's like a tux, on the bottom it's like a dress. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going that far. Okay. <laughs> All right. So after we get past this uh, opening credits with this dance of with char- stops the movie cold with by characters the way. who are not not in the, in the film. No, it doesn't stop the movie cold. The movie hasn't even started. Exactly. <laughs> and like, how long are these opening credits? We got to listen to the entire song. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so we our opening scene is with Julia Roberts as Julianne, who also goes by Jules. So very creative. Okay, so we don't want to confuse Miss Roberts, so <laughs> let's just give her a character name and just like hers. She's had a couple rocky years. She had a couple movies that didn't work, so it's like let's make it really easy on her, okay? Her name was Evelyn. We're just gonna make it Julia. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So Jules is at lunch with her editor and she's a food critic. Oh God. <laughs> So who's more Tell insufferable? Us how you really feel. Yeah. 
So, I, I, for one thing, any scene in a five-star restaurant immediately gives me PTSD. I'm like, oh, I've oh, been yeah. there. Because they were like, if you don't get this right, I'm going to kill you. And Barry's like, yeah, that I'm like, checks out. I've heard that. <laughs> That's like a Tuesday night where I used to work. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, like they're all like looking, peeking outside the, the kitchen window and watching eagerly as the food critic takes a bite. What, the, what happens here, which I've never seen, I don't know if this is something that's ever been done. I really don't. But from my understanding is they sit, they eat, they don't say anything. They don't, and the chef will go out and say hi and make nice, but they don't tell you what they think of your food. Like, cause she does this thing like it's frothy and it's delectable and imaginative and I'm giving it an eight. I'm giving it a solid eight. And they're like, yeah, and they applaud. I'm like, I've never seen that. I don't think it works that way. And I don't think you'd even want, I don't think you'd want them to know, you know? Yeah, because what if you give them a bad score? It's like, oh, she has a souffle left. Uh, let me, <laughs> let me, uh, let me, uh, let me dress that That's souffle. <laughs> she gives me a four. Huh? I'm going to make this a uh, two. <laughs> oh yeah, I was asking you. Do you think who's the wor- Who's the better film critic, Jules or the film critic from Ratatouille? Food critic. Anton Ego, well, yeah. you know, the funny thing about that was when that movie came out, I swear everybody had an idea of what I did. Yeah. Because, you know, I started being a professional food critic, food critic, film critic. Oh, gosh, I'm not a food critic. I started writing about films professionally in 2008, and then Ratatouille came out, I think, 2009. So very quickly, I would tell people, like, oh, you're like Anton Ego, yeah. You know, like suddenly, oh, okay, now you understand me and what I do. I sit, I'm just like this morose little man who just sits <laughs> in the darkness dressed in black. Just like unhappy, sour grapes. to ruin someone's life. And I'm just like writing all by myself. The ambiance in this place is insufferable. Yeah. Okay, so... I can't wait for this existence to cease. So you're admitting Jules is the better food critic. No, Antonigo is definitely better. Absolutely. (laughs) I feel like he's better. Yeah, because I feel like the way she does it is uh, lame. Hmm. Okay. She's like that insufferable food critic in um, the Ray Fiennes movie, The Menu. She just sits oh. there gabby, gabby, gabbing with her best friend. Like, that's not how you do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is another Because it should be – because look, like, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to do this. There's a lot of ways to be, you know, constructively critical. And, you know, you're also trying to support a new restaurant. You should It should be about that as well as being a way to introduce people or even to warn people. But it shouldn't be about tearing down the artist because if you're going to a five-star restaurant and it's clearly run by artists – you, it should be about supporting them as opposed to this thing of like, well, you have to you're, – you're here to serve me. Like I, I hate that kind of attitude. Oh, you and think I, she has that attitude? Yes. And I don't, I don't go to movies that way. I definitely don't go to five-star restaurants that way. Mm. So yeah, I think there's something really rotten about that attitude. And when movies make fun of those characters like in, a, in the case of the menu, I'm like, yes, absolutely. Make them suffer. All right. Well, let's keep going because – we, we've, no, let's talk about food criticism. We're only <laughs> we're in two minutes. Do you think um, she goes to McDonald's? She's like crunchy, delectable. <laughs> I'm loving it. Oh my gosh. Okay, so she gets a message from her best friend Michael, and she listens to it while she's at the Michael, table. played by Dylan McDermott. Dermot Mulroney. Oh, the other guy. <laughs> we are not doing this again. <laughs> so, Dermot. Dermot McDivitt. No. Okay. McDivitt. Stop it. 
<laughs> okay, so he says he needs to talk. Uh. And George is like, oh, he needs to talk. Sounds intriguing. And... Um, it's established that they had been lovers a while back, right? They well, had... they dated. She said they had one hot month in college where they dated. One hot yeah. month. Yeah. And then she w- broke up with him. August. And then she... Um, February. He, he got February. really... He got sad mm-hmm. and was like, I'm really sad. I'm going to lose my best friend. And so then they've been best friends ever since. Mm. So I think they've been... So they're 28 now. And he said like at one time... So she's telling George the story that when they were, you know, I don't know, 20 or something, that they like kind of did this blood oath where if they weren't married by the time they were 28, they would marry each other. A weird couple. <laughs> I think they were best friends with benefits. <laughs> no, they had one month of benefits and then they broke up. And then they were just like platonic best friends. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Plus the blood oath. Come on. Come well, okay. So they're they're twenty eight. It's like it's twenty. That's like what? They're too old to like still find somebody. The audience that finds this movie plausible will find them very very old. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's so crazy. So George is like, oh, desperate to talk. Like maybe that's why he wants to talk to you because you know you guys are going to be twenty eight soon. Now you're talking about George, played by Rupert Everett. Yes. Yes, yes, her best friend, and her editor. actual best friend. Yeah, yeah, her actual best friend, and the and the editor of like the paper she writes for. Yeah. Okay, so we've established that there's George and there's Michael and there's Jules, and- but not a romantic comedy, and in a sense, it's not a you know a a romantic triangle because established very quickly that George is gay. Yes. Yes. Okay, so Jules goes back home and she calls Michael and she talks to him about the night that they promised to marry at 28. And he's like, she's like, oh, you probably don't think about that. He's like, I think about that all the time, but it's not why I called. And he tells her that he's met someone and they're getting married in four days. And he wants her to fly to Chicago for this like four day wedding extravaganza and he's going to be marrying Kim, who's only 20. So eight years is junior. And he need he tells her that he needs her to hold his hand through this or he's never going to make it through. And now... And this sets the story in yeah. motion. And now Jules is like telling George she's going to go to Chicago and she's going to get him back. She's going to she's gonna break up this wedding, steal the bride's fella, and bring him home. So let's recount, listeners. So Julia Roberts is 28 years old. She's single. She's a foodie. And she can't find anybody but this friend she made a blood oath with seven years ago, roughly. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I know. So this movie takes place on another planet, in other <laughs> words. But And it's also established that she has a hard time with, like, feelings and, like, love. And by the way, yeah, and she's a food critic and she has this huge sprawling apartment because, as we know, all critics are just raking it in, you know, all those, you know, years and years Maybe of... Maybe she's writing for the New York Times. It doesn't really... They don't really tell us. She could be writing for the Los Angeles Times, and there's no way she would get a, have an apartment that big on that yeah. salary. Okay, yeah. well, maybe she Has also... Has she written free- any food books? Maybe she freelances. Maybe she writes her own recipe books. We don't know. <laughs> you think, like, she's like, um, oh, what's the one who makes the Sammies? What's her name? Rachel Ray. You think she's like <laughs> Rachel Ray? Sammies? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. But she seems to be doing pretty well for herself. Oh, uh, very well. Yeah. Very, very, extremely well. 
In a very contrived movie way, yes. Okay, yes. So she flies to Chicago, and this is like, you know, 1997. You can still meet people in the terminal. I do miss that. Yeah. Yeah. And so she Mike, she sees Michael, and then she meets Kim, and this is where, you know, we meet Cameron Diaz as Kim for the first time, who's adorable, by the way. Yeah, because it's Cameron Diaz. But um, Michael is played by... Dermot Mulroney. Thank you. Maroney or Maroney? I don't know. His parents really did him a disservice with this name. All right. So Dermot McDivitt. So he's playing <laughs> George as this... No, Michael. Michael, thank you. As this lump of a guy who just... He, I mean, this he guy... He doesn't really have a personality. He kind of sucks. Do you think he sucks? Yes. Because I asked you, like, oh, do you think, like he's feeling anything for Jules after all these years. And you were like, well, we don't really have his perspective. The entire film. Yeah. We never, we never hear. He never has like, he doesn't have a best friend to confide in, but no, in the entire film, I do think he's oblivious. I think he's very comfortable with his relationship with Julianne. Um, so no, I, I think, I, I think he's just really comfortable with her. He doesn't, he probably doesn't have any male friends that he can connect to. So this is somebody who he's just, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever. We'll we'll snuggle and watch an Audrey Hepburn movie together. No big deal. It's Julianne. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but you like Kimmy? Cameron Diaz? Yeah. Of course. I mean, I mean, I mean, she's insufferable. But yeah, oh. sure. <laughs> I mean, they're all kind of obnoxious. I mean, look, like, <laughs> I mean, like the the charisma of these actors goes a long way. But um, but yeah. So I mean, we have a romantic comedy. About someone who is setting off out to, to, to ruin a wedding. Yes. I mean, the full title of this movie, full title is, uh, I'm a terrible person because I want to destroy my best friend's wedding. That's really <laughs> the full title of this movie. I mean, it's awful. This could be like a, you know, this could be like a thriller, but instead it's this, it's this, it's strangely enough, this rom-com. And one of the nice things about it, it's, it's kind of a dissection of all the, a lot, a lot of the tropes, not all of them, but a lot of the tropes are dissected here because... Our protagonist is the villain. <laughs> Our the guy in the middle of it is kind of neither here nor there. And then you know the Cameron Diaz character, she is both perfect and also too much. Yeah. Okay, so she asks Jules to be her maid of honor, like right away. Yeah. And she's like, "I have four days to make you my new best friend." So it's just a lot about like, well, what is a best friend? How do you have a best friend? Uh, or is this just a thing, a phrase we throw around? Yeah. All right, so the thing about this wedding, though, is because there's, like, all these events, they're doing things like, you know, getting fitted for tuxes. Like, Michael's getting fitted for a tux, like, and he, that he's supposed to wear in two days. And then right after the airport, Julianne has to go get fitted for a bridesmaid's dress that right. she's never seen before. Well, you know, for A, I've been to a wedding that was exactly like this, where everything was haphazardly coming together at the last minute. It was a very big, okay. rich, extravagant wedding. However... Were the people billionaires? Because, like, Kimmy's family, they're billionaires. That's what we, like... It was It was a very wealthy wedding, yes. It was a rich, wealthy wedding. Um, like, but Don't you think people, like, plan ahead for stuff like this, though? People who expect everything to come together just expect things to come together for them. That's so when true. it doesn't come together, it's like, oh, okay, we got to drive to the dry cleaners. Oh, we need to get fitted for this. Oh, we need to get the bouquet. Oh, we need to get the chairs. And we have money, so people will just do it. Yeah, it's all going to come together. It's it's fine. It's 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 my perfect day. It's my perfect day. So it's going to be perfect. Don't you worry. It's all going to come together. It's all going to come together. <laughs> okay, so um, 
Anyways, Kim like picks out this dress for her that's completely different from the other bridesmaids, and she like it's. Don't you think it's a little single white female that like the amount of information she knows about Julianne with a different music score? This whole movie could be single white female. <laughs> yes, no, this whole movie could be a thriller because she's like she's like, well, you wouldn't be comfortable unless you were distinctive. It's like um, doo 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 doo. I mean, look, you know. I mean, it's a bold thing to do, to have a romantic comedy where the protagonist is not likable. It's it's bizarre. And Karen Diaz, you're rooting for her, but it's established that she's 20 years old and she and Michael barely know each other. Like, it's, it's definitely one of these things where they are rushing into this. So you as the audience are also kind of like on the fence, like, well... Cameron Diaz is adorable and Dermot Moroni is dreamy and therefore they should end up together because in a perfect world, people this beautiful should get married. But even, you know, even they have problems because they barely know each other. So it's one of those relationships where it's like, who are we rooting for here? And it, it is a problem because, you know, the thing that Julia Roberts is doing, it's not cute and whimsical. It's very mean spirited. And the film is very upfront about that. She's doing awful things. And, she, and you know, and... I guess we're supposed to excuse it because she's talking her way through it. She has, you know, George as the angel on her shoulder who's going, no, don't do that. And she does the wrong thing over and over and over again. But it puts you in a very weird place as an audience member because either you're willing to go with the fact that this is sort of an anti-romantic comedy or you're kind of like me where I'm going, I kind of have a problem with this premise because indeed – with an easy rewrite, cutting just a few scenes and changing the music score, this could be a thriller <laughs> or a horror film. So, yeah, throughout the film, Jules is talking to George, like either on the phone or in person. And um, she doesn't really know what to think about Kim at this point. But um, Michael walks in on her, like in her underwear, because she's just, he's handing her her dress or whatever. And he's like, you look really good without your clothes on. And it's just like, okay, what? And then she just says, George, she's toast. So it's like, all of a sudden now, does she think that Michael like wants to be with her? Well, we see how she is with Michael throughout the film. She's very manic with him. She's very needy with him. She gets really erratic. And it's like, you know, it's it, it, what I'm worried about right now is the only thing that's important. I mean, she has like these episodes with him throughout the movie. Mm. Seriously, like this is... This is very unhealthy, <laughs> even without the fact that she is manipulating him over and over again to get the sense of like, this is what it was like, like, oh my gosh, like the other night I was like, honey, let's go home. She's like, no, I, I got, we got to have haagen because it's what we do. It's our anniversary. It's been seven weeks. So we have to go to haagen And I'm like, no, honey, we need to go home. Oh my gosh. She like yelled and screamed. And finally I turned the car around and we shared a haagen and it was really nice. I'm really glad we did it. But no, man, <laughs> you should have ditched this chick in college. She's nuts. Well, he, well, I mean, but it was Hagen does. <laughs> you can't resist Hagen does. Come on, Barry. <laughs> Seriously, like, like, there's so many, so many tells about their past through their current behavior where you get the sense, like, this is it, it you know, we've, we've known couples like this. You have your moments, and it's sort of, you know, couples who like they have their moments, and it's like, okay. They, you know, whether it's romantic or because they have fun together, but when they have to actually work as a team, because marriage should hopefully be some kind of teamwork, they're a disaster because one or both of them are so selfish and so needy, you know, and, and no one is willing to let the other person win. Like compromise does not exist. It's like this war. Mm. Anyway, we've known couples like that. Hope I don't think we're like that. 
at least not every day. Not every day. <laughs> Tuesdays, yeah, but not every day. But no, like, I mean, honestly, seeing them again, I mean, it's it's an. I mean, certainly this movie is interesting as a character study, no question, because everybody's messy in this film. Yes, that's kind of why I like it, though, because you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? All right, so. Kim is taking Julianne to some brunch thing and they're in an elevator talking about like all the bad things about Michael, you know, like how he snores and all this stuff. And then it's so weird because the context is that we've both slept with him. Yeah. It's weird. Yes. And then he's going to dinner with the two of them on each side of him. Like, this is very odd. Okay, This but, is unusual. But Kim tells Jules she's not going to be jealous of her for the rest of her life. And she's like, you won. You're on a pedestal and I'm in his arms. And like, I think she thinks like she can never live up to Julianne. But it's like, what are the stories that Michael's been telling her? Yeah. You know, we don't know. And I mean, just as a sort of aside, but also to give some insight into this, this whole thing, like. When you and I got married, there were a few people I did not invite to our wedding. One was a girl I had kind of a crush on in college. Another one was somebody who I dated for years. And both of them approached me later on and said, like, hey, like, I really wanted to go to your wedding. How come I wasn't invited? And then I told them, like, look, I'm sorry. We had a guest list. I only had so many people I can invite. But the, the, the truth is, like, there's some people I just did not want at our wedding because, like, I didn't want it to be weird for you. I didn't want it to be weird for me. I don't want it, like, you know, you and I are, like, whatever, feeding each other cake. And I look in my periphery, like, there's my ex. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So what I'm, what I'm saying is, yeah, like. having exes at your wedding a little odd. I mean, I guess unless it's this situation where it's been so long. But this is that where they should have, I mean, she, like Kimmy should have been like, okay, I get that this is like one of your best friends and everything, but like you and this, and this girl were intimate, not only on a sexual level, but on an emotional level that I, I'm, we're not even there yet. I'm not comfortable having this person at our wedding. She should have put her foot down. She can come to she can come to a little dinner before the, the wedding, but like when it comes to the wedding, she shouldn't be there because it's not appropriate. This is like your ex-wife. Yeah. Well, you know? I know, but Kim's only 20 and she thought it would be fine. And she was wrong. <laughs> so, so, so terribly wrong. So wrong. Okay. So Julianne goes to the ballpark because it's established that Kimmy's dad like owns the White Sox and <laughs> cable TV. Like what? So he's, he's Rupert Murdoch basically. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. a billionaire. And so she's. This is back of, when there were only like seven cable channels. So who cares? Yeah, this is the 90s. It's not that impressive. But they have, um, her and Michael have this talk about how perfect Kim is. And um, it kind of comes down to the fact that like she likes PDA and Jules never liked PDA. And she isn't comfortable with, quote, yucky love stuff. And they keep talking about this, that like this is like a make or break thing, like PDA. Again, easy fix to make this a horror film. You have a scene where like Julia Roberts is like looking outside, like looking out a window and she has her back to the camera and, you know, and she's like got this intense stare. Someone like sneaks up behind her, taps on the shoulder, tur turns around and goes, don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch me. Cause that's what we're talking about here. I mean, this is, you know, well, I, cause he's like, he's like, I, you know, she let me hug her in public and like didn't, and I didn't have to let go right away. And I'm like, Okay. What were their intimate moments like? Uh, we've never actually touched each other, but we had a relationship for years. Uh, no, <laughs> no. It sounds like for Jules, she's fine with like the friendship piece and the sex piece, right. but like this in between, which I wouldn't even call it in between, but like the 
the relationship part. Public display of affection. Yeah, Got like, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She has a hard time with that. But I'm like, okay, like, is that not everybody likes That's a PDA. small sacrifice to make to be with, with Dermot Moroni. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it, it just feels like a very, like, small thing in comparison. Like, is, that's the conflict yeah. that, that we're talking about. It's ridiculous. By the way, I served Dormont Moroni at the five-star restaurant I worked at. Mm-hmm. Have I told you about that? I don't know. He, uh, yeah, he sat with his lovely wife, and um, I told him my spiel. I brought him the food, and I told him everything. And then he was kind of looking at the food, and I guess, I don't know if his mind was elsewhere or if he was tired, but he just laughs, and he looks at me. He's like, I'm sorry. Could you say all that again? And I did. <laughs> and he thanked me. I'm like, oh, I had a moment with Dermot Mulroney. How nice. Aw. Yeah. Well, at least he was polite. He's a good guy. Yeah. All right. Now we go to this karaoke, the karaoke bar. Oh, gosh. Where um, where PJ Hogan's like, more singing, more singing and dancing. <laughs> it's really a musical. <laughs> but um, Jules takes them there because Mike, her and Michael love karaoke and... She knows that Kimmy basically confided in her and said, like, she can't sing a note. It's mean as hell is yeah, what it is. it really it's is. It's really mean. So they talk. And then Jules and Michael just talk all about their inside jokes in front of her. And we find out Kimmy's going to quit college for Michael. They end up forcing her to sing a song, which, okay, the way this happens, never in the history of, like, a real karaoke bar like this girl she just looks at her like i don't hear you sing like no you have to sign up you have to put your name you don't let on the drunkies in the karaoke bar have like law and order no, no exactly there there are rules to this when you took me to my first ever karaoke club there was a guy named karaoke ken who we had to like basically <laughs> yeah. he was like he judge, did. jury, and executioner. Exactly. You had to sign up with him. You had to make sure you had the song. He checked with you to make sure you knew the song so you weren't going to go up there and just he do anything. didn't. Yes, you did. Really? Yeah. I told him I was going to do like the Righteous Brothers, Love that, You Lost That Love and Feeling. He's like, you know this? Do you need it? Like, yeah, yeah, we're good, good. Yeah. That's funny. I it was didn't cool. Know that. Yeah, Kyoku Ken was very specific. He didn't and I'm like, ask me if I knew, man, I feel like a woman. I think he took one look at you, like, oh, yeah, she knows that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so this random song comes up and she has the microphone like this was just would never happen this way. You know, the thing is, for one thing, again, like it's it's a, it really is about what the actors are contributing. Cameron Diaz, who I think is a very underrated actress, you know, she's known for certain comedies. She's known for Charlie's Angels. There's something about Mary. Um, I think she's really terrific. And I think she actually has a really versatile body of work that people tend to overlook. What she does here as an actress is interesting because – the character has to look completely pathetic, but also this is the thing but that endearing. endears her to her yes. fiancé. Yes. And you you see it too because she's singing horrifically off-key. And at first, like the camera is lingering on Julia Roberts getting a kick out of this, which again is like, like man, this is, this is not funny or even enjoyable. But the fact that Diaz plays it from such a point of desperation and it becomes like these loving gazes that Dermot Moroni is giving her, it's like, all right, the scene, they basically get away with the fact that this scene is so mean. Yeah. Yeah, because she finishes. I mean, I mean to- the whole place. At first, they're like groaning with like, "Oh man, she cannot sing." And then at the end, they're cheering for her. You know, it's it's the kind of movie where when someone starts to sing a song in this movie, it's from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. I mean, Whitney Houston 
couldn't sing an entirety of any of her songs in The Bodyguard, but I'm so glad Cameron Diaz got to sing that one song off-key, four and a half minutes worth of it, <laughs> in my best friend's wedding. I know. It's so long. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. But um, then they, like, hug and kiss at the bar, which apparently is really important to Michael. So, you know, I'm glad that that happened for him. So Kim leaves that. She goes off to some, like, dinner at her grandma's house. And Jules is left with Michael, and they're eating hot dogs. And she tells Michael, like, Kim is making a sacrifice, like, to marry you. And wonders if her dad will offer him a job. And he's just like no, like, no, that would never happen. Like, I love my job. And he's like, just like a sports writer for some like local paper. That's not a big deal. And this is where Jules starts scheming with Kim about how to get Michael a job with her dad's corporation. So, cause she knows that Michael won't go for it and that it will, he'll be mad. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's a weird thing because the film is trying to make this distinction that the Michael has his principles and he doesn't have the kind of money that he's about to marry into. But then it's like, well, what's with the Julia Roberts character? Because apparently the one who's really dead broke in this movie is Michael. (laughs) He has no money. Everybody else in this movie, even Rupert Everett, they are rich, 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 except for Domar Mulroney. He is like, he's got nothing. And then it's like, well, what what does he have to offer? And it's like, oh, there's that smile. Yeah. A nice and really nice smile. Oh, he's got those eyebrows. They're twitching. Oh, (laughs) But beyond that, like, what is the appeal of this character? Because he's he we, we see these moments where he's not nice to Cameron Diaz, and he's clearly insecure over the fact that they don't know each other that well. Like, there, there are, and by the way, these are all great things to consider before you're about to rush into someone you shouldn't be marrying, you know? Right. So. And he's not really considering them very much. Yes. So, I, I don't, you know, I... At no point, and I'm serious about this, at no point was I ever rooting for Julia Roberts in this movie, ever. But at the same time, she's got a point. She barely knows this girl. Yeah. He barely knows this girl, rather. Like, yeah. it's, you know, it, the fact that they are rushing into this marriage, like, it, it's it's a concern in any case. Although, I don't know that I, I was always worried about Cameron Diaz's character. I never really thought, like, oh, poor Dermot. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, he'll be fine. He's going to be just fine. Yeah. All right. So Michael, Jules, and Kim go to dinner. I think this is where you were talking about like them like flanking him on either side. Hmm. And you, you were you uncomfortable with that? Um, I'm, I'm just saying like there's not only is there subtext that this movie doesn't know quite what to do with, but but also um, I, I just think that if Kimmy was really – I mean, how long is the how long have they been together? Is it established? It's just like a couple months, I think. So if it's been months of hearing about Julianne, yeah, I would, you know, and plus, like, she meets this girl, and you know, uh, you know, Julia Roberts. It, it's a nice contrast, you know. Julia Roberts and Cameron Diaz look nothing like each other, so it's a real. It's like okay, this is like a very different kind of person in every sense. But I mean, if I was Kimmy, I would take one look at Julie Roberts, who is a very imposing presence. She's intimidating in some ways. She's speaking, you know, um, in like a secret language with her fiance. I would say, I'm so glad you came. It was really nice to meet you. Hey, uh, Michael, um, I don't want her at the wedding. <laughs> She's not allowed, okay? I don't care. I don't care anything. Say anything. But she's not allowed to our wedding. <laughs> And instead, she's like, oh, we're like sisters. No, 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 no. Okay. So Kim brings up the job thing because like, her and Jules have already been scheming, right? 
and Michael and Kim get into a big fight and he's like, just admit it. My job's not good enough. I'm not good enough. And then instead of, I think Jules thinks like Kim is going to stand up for herself and say like, you need, you should do this, blah, blah, blah. She kind of reneges and they, she apologizes and they make up at the table much to Julianne's chagrin. It's a weird bit because the idea that this one fight is going to be enough to break them up. What what Julianne should be leaning into is that she can get these two to fight at the drop of a hat. It's really not hard at right, all. Right, right. Really, really easy. There's a whole bunch of topics that are that are tender for these two. Yeah. Well, Instead, so- she's like, darn it, foiled again. <laughs> well, she calls George. She gets out of like, what else do I have on my list of evil deeds? Yeah, one of the things I love that this movie does is... Jules calling George at very inopportune times and just leaving like unhinged messages and other people like hearing everything she says and him just being like, well, uh, should we just keep continuing on and forget that didn't happen? How much you like this movie really depends on how much you like Julia Roberts' character in this film. And I'm just, I'm not, I've, I've, I've said it before. I'm just, I've never been a big fan of Julia Roberts. I think her performance in this movie is very good. It's bold because she's committed to how awful this character is. But I mean, I, I have an impossible time rooting for her. And every time she's bothering George, because this is her editor as well. So it's like, oh man, this is a work friend. So on one level, it's like, okay, I care about this person. But the other level, he's just like, doggone it. I have to take this call because this stupid client of mine is once again, like about to jump off a ledge. And once again, I got to talk her down. No, she's not his client. She's like, his employee, which is worse. It's even weirder. Yeah, it's like it's 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 an it's an unhealthy dynamic. Forgive me, I don't know the specific. It's it's a weird dynamic, and of course, what I'm getting at is, at some level, he feels obligated to help her, and I mean, she's just a pill, and he's he's clearly a good-hearted, not to mention extremely patient person to put up with her again and again, because clearly this kind of crap just keeps happening with okay, her. Okay, because he shows up, she calls him, and he's there the next morning. To, like, hold her hand. And she tells him, like, if I didn't hate her, I'd adore her. That's what she says about Kim. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, listen to yourself. You sound psycho. And so, like, George tells her to tell Michael the truth. Like, you have to tell him the truth. And he gives her so many good things to say that she just never says, you know? Yeah. So... This is where she Jules tries to tell Michael about her feelings, but ends up telling him that she's engaged to George <laughs> without telling George first. So surprise. It's a sitcom, folks. <laughs> it's a sitcom. So um, George is like, oh, now I'm staying because you've roped me into your nonsense. I like it. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to torture you because yeah. you, you put me in this impossible yeah. situation. I'm here to help you. And you're just making this so much worse. Yeah. I, I do like that, that there's like... The sadistic pleasure to what he's doing. Yeah. Because yeah. then he gets to meet Kim and Kim just is like freaking out. And so George freaks out. I mean, he just like matches everybody's emotions just because it's funny. Yeah. Oh, my God. Race you to the altar. <clears throat> Underplay. Got it. Hey, I'm Jules's fiance, George. <laughs> just in time for a quick pre-conjugal visit if you catch my drift. I do. <laughs> You're going to humiliate me, aren't you? Only if I can. Okay, just one thing. Stay away from me. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! I don't know why I was so carried away! Ah! 
against God's plan? No! Oh, no! This is wonderful! It's wonderful! You have to meet George. George. You must be Kimmy's little sister. Oh. Julian's fiance, they're going to be married. No. Yes. What's going on? Julian's getting married. Oh, no. Why didn't you tell us? Oh, really I wanted to. I wanted to shout it from the rooftops, but Jules said no. Pumpkin, no. This is Kimmy's day. Let's not take the attention away from Kimmy. Oh, oh dear, sweet, adorable, chocolate-covered Kimmy. Those were her very words. I think I'm gonna cry. Me too. <laughs> George, this is so sweet of you to come to our rehearsal. I insist you stay on to lunch. Oh, yes. No, 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 absolutely. Love to. <laughs> love the bag, love the shoes, love everything, love to. Thank you. <laughs> Darling, what about your flight? Cancelled. So then they go to lunch and they want to hear the story about how Jules and George met. And he's like, we met at a mental institution. So just the whole thing starts off completely crazy and just gets crazier. And then that's when we have our little sing-along. Because what this movie needs is another musical number. And we get to hear this song from beginning to end, the entirety <laughs> of it. And here's here's how bad it got, folks. There was a point... On MTV as a music video, they used to play this scene. Mm. So you could watch the sing-along scene for my best friend's wedding in its entirety as an MTV video. I remember watching it like, next, it's the scene from my best friend's wedding. And they would actually play the entire scene. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. You're not, you're not just going to suffer in the theaters. We're going to get you but at home too. But don't you think it's funny that he does this just to get on her nerves? Kind of. But I mean, I guess we're also supposed to see that... You know, the, the whole thing is like, Michael is now jealous of George. Right. Yes. You know, which is ridiculous. <laughs> he goes like, oh, he can make them sing. No, he's not jealous. He's jealous because he thinks they're getting married. Yeah, but it's also, it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's so contrived. I mean, they, you know, if this was a sitcom, this would be able to, they would wrap this up in 15 minutes. Oh, well, of course. And so then he, so now he's going to leave and... He tells her again, like, you need to tell him the truth. And she's like, well, what's he going to do? He's like, he's going to marry Kim. And that's it. And you're going to, like, send them off on their honeymoon. And you're going to be happy for them. And, like, he basically kind of tells her, the, us, the rest of the movie, what's going to happen. But, of course, that doesn't stop her from trying a little right. bit more. Yeah. So she tells <clears throat> Michael that they're not really engaged, that Mike, that that they had broken up a long time ago, but he just couldn't, like, let it let her go. And so Michael was jealous. And um, he's like, let's spend some time together this afternoon. Okay, so this is the boat ride scene. Mm. Yes. Which I feel like is a very pivot could have been a pivotal moment for these two. It is a pivotal moment. Yeah. Because this is, you know, she basically has her moment to say everything she needs to say and she blows it. She doesn't do it. Yeah. Because he says, you've always been the woman in my life and... And they dance. Well, but he goes, you know, something that Kim says is like, when you love somebody, you just say it right then or the moment will pass you by. And they're like going under the bridge and you think for a moment, like one of them is going to say like, I love you. I've always loved you. And they don't do it because, well, I know why he doesn't do it. Cause I think he doesn't really love her. Right. 
Um, on some level, he feels something, but he's too much of a lunkhead to really connect to it. <laughs> but then she she doesn't she doesn't do it. The yucky love fear is too strong in her. Good alternate title for this movie: <laughs> the yucky love fear. <laughs> so then he. Um, do you think though that he's waiting for her to say it? Like, do you think he thinks she? I genuinely think. And I think this is, I've seen this film more than a few times because I used to really love this movie. I no longer love this movie. But I, every time I've seen it, I really genuinely think that what it is that he's seeing in her that he's attracted to is that it's everything he doesn't have with Kimmy. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of like, oh, this is working. It doesn't work with Kimmy. But don't you think that's just because they've known each other for so long and there's right. that comfortable Comfortability. Yes, but at the same you. time, you know, there's... And it's the fact that they did everything backwards. You know, they were lovers and then they were friends. So there's yes. probably that problem because they're, you know, I've certainly known that too. Like friends who are like, oh yeah, like we can't really get back what we had. We had this killer chemistry before, but then ever since we broke up, it's just not the same. It's like, it's, it's, you know, right. yeah, it's too weird. Mm-hmm. So I think there could be that. Yeah. But no, I, I genuinely, the whole movie, I'm, I'm genuinely thinking he is not actually attracted to her. It's like, she's beautiful. We have a shorthand. And she is feeling a need in these emotional areas that Kimmy is not. So maybe it's an emotional affair. Well, ooh, that's interesting. But I think like him and Kim could end up there. They just, it's just too new. They barely know each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like maybe yeah. after a couple of years, sure. Yeah. And a few more karaoke sessions. Yes, they'll be fine. <laughs> but right now, like it's, it, I mean, they're basically at the beginning of the relationship and they're trying to make up for lost time. And yeah, I mean, you know, and I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've been to weddings. So it's like, man, they barely know each other. Okay. So at the end of this scene, Michael and Jules dance while he sings The Way You Look Tonight, which is their uh, song. Yeah. More, more sing, more singing. More singing, more <laughs> See, singing. PJ Hogan. I, I said this. This movie was supposed to be a musical. Would it shock you to know that it became a musical on Broadway? No, yes. it was not. So it was announced that it was going to open in September 2021, but it was postponed due to the pandemic. So as of this moment, it is not open on Broadway, but it was <laughs> songs by Burt Bacharach. So it's it it exists. It's just it hasn't it has not premiered yet. Mm. But yeah, coming soon to the Great White Way on Broadway. My best no no my my, my best friend's wedding. It is my best friend's wedding. Yeah, I, I always confuse that title with others. Okay. Anyway, yeah. All right. So that is the afternoon that just reinforces Jules' need to continue with her scheme. So she her goes, psychotic breakdown continues. Yes, yes. So she goes to Kimmy's dad's office, Walter. She goes to Walter's office to make some calls. She sits down at his computer and <laughs> basically composes an email to Michael's boss from Walter on his personal computer. And this this always is so crazy to me. This is like some Laura Flynn Boyle, the temp stuff. Yeah. This is like again, like you get rid of the cute little dun 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 dun, dun soundtrack, and you ch- and you change it up with something by Howard Shore. You've got a thriller here because yeah. this is this is where I mean this is this is horror movie stuff. So she okay, this is the part though, like she just wants to save the email like in his like draft folder, and she puts in the two like the name of his boss and like where he works. She does not ever write. An official email address. Don't you know how the internet works, Jewel? 
<laughs> There's no at, you know, AOL or anything like that. On Don't here. you know that if like you want to send me an email, for example, listeners, you know, you're like Barry Worse. So what you do is you write Barry Worse and you send it to uh, podcaststud.com. It'll get to me. It will. It'll magically show up because <laughs> no, that's how the yeah. internet works. All you write is Barry Worse, comma, so I married a film critic, and then it'll get to us. That, Automatic. That's all you have to do. Yes. That's how I read all of our letters, which is why we haven't received any letters so far. <laughs> so, but she's like talking to herself, like, I'm not going to send this. Like, I'm just going to show it to him later, you know? Then we see Walter talking to his assistant, and he's like, you know, take care of this, this, this. Oh, yeah. And I'm holding four or five emails. You know, go ahead and send those out. And I'm like, What? Has anyone in the history of humankind ever said that? Like, who has ever just, like, had drafts of emails in their draft folder and told their assistant, like, yeah, go ahead and send those out? You couldn't press send yourself? You know, I, I wanted to order those Fifty Shades of Grey books but from Amazon. <laughs> I was kind of on the fence. But, hey, when you get back to my computer, can you hit the send button for me? Because I actually really want to read just, those now. Can you just buy now? I, I mean... That is so, it's so contrived. It's there's, so contrived. Yeah, there's no, yeah, no. <sighs> All right. Ronald Bass, you know, he's an older guy who wrote the screenplay. He's the Oscar winner for writing Rain Man. He's a very accomplished screenwriter. He's an excellent screenwriter for that matter. I wonder if the internet was just kind of new for him. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, like, okay. In maybe, maybe it's like a telegram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, in 1997, I mean, I didn't even have email yet. Yeah, I just I had my first email address in college the year before because I was a freshman. And I took a yeah. computer class. That was yeah. it. Yeah, I think we all got so this our is first the dial-up emails yeah. in college. So maybe this is like you know maybe this is like the early '80s when they had movies about computers. You know, like war games where it's like computers are very exotic, but often screenwriters don't know how they work. Right. So he's like, yeah, his assistant will just send out his emails. I know. Okay, so. Jules can't get back into the office. They don't have the right key. and She, so she, she wants to get back in the office because she wants yeah. to undo what she has no, done. No, no. She wants to show Michael the email. All right. She's not trying to undo anything. Okay. She's still going with this whole scheme. But he's like, sorry, you know. And then they go back to her hotel room. He's like, fine. Like, we can call him and get the key and I'll take you. And then he's like opening up like a fax that he got. Like, when did he get this fax? Because... As someone pointed out, like on IMDb, his boss was like at at the game, like just like earlier, either that day or the day before. So it's like his boss is there, has met Walter. He anyway, so he's sending Michael a fax. And Michael just happens to have it with him. And it has a letter from his boss with the email that Julianne sent. Is this the plot to Mission Impossible? I'm sorry. I'm so lost. What are you talking about? This is my best friend's wedding, right? This is one about the guy likes the chick and the chick likes the yes. guy, but the other chick is in the way, right? What are, we, what are you talking about? This is – I'm really confused right now. Yeah, I know. It's confusing. It is. It's it's freaking ridiculous movie because, you know, for all the – look, we'll talk about it more, but like later on, this film went through a lot of pruning before it finally went up in the big screen. This subplot they could have cut. They could have cut this. They should have just had the bridge scene and then you get near the end of the film where she decides to be honest with him. You know, like we don't need this corporate espionage subplot in my best friend's wedding. What are you thinking, Ronald Bass? No, it doesn't work. It, I agree with you, Jules. It doesn't make sense. It's needlessly complicated and it's it's dark. 
Yeah. It's really dark. It, it is dark. It's like this moral dilemma. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, because he calls Kim and is like, you know, your dad sent this email to my boss, like trying to get me, trying to get in the way of like basically telling like Walter is telling his boss like moral sabotage. Yeah. Like, you're trying to, you're t- trying to destroy someone's reputation through words. Well, yeah. Well, she's trying to like get the boss to like fire Michael so that mm-hmm. he'll take Walter's job off her. It's crazy. It, which is crazy. And so, but, um, so we don't hear that conversation with Kim, but he sends Jules outside. So that's when she's in the hallway, like smoking and she runs into Paul Giamatti. <laughs> God bless you, Paul Giamatti. Same year. He was the bad guy in Howard Stern's private parts. Yeah. Oh, this is back. This is before Giamatti was a household name. He's now like a very accomplished and a terrific actor. But yeah, he, uh, he briefly steals the movie away, which is cool. There's a lot of people doing this in this movie. There's a lot of like really showy moments. I like this moment between the two of them. Yeah, because he's like, you can't smoke in out here. You know, it says no smoking floor. And she's like, why don't you arrest me? I'm a horrible person. Just make a citizen's arrest. I won't struggle. And I think now we're starting to see like that she's really feeling bad. Or it's a tender moment between the two of them. And now she's fixated on Giamatti. <laughs> I really like him, but I feel like I need to send a bad email for him to like me more. Oh, my gosh. So, Michael comes out and says that it's over and he's like I'm crazy to fall for someone I hardly knew and he's like you know do you have the wedding ring and earlier in the day she had put it on her finger and it got stuck like what why and this is the sex scene in the film where he sucks on her finger and pulls the The ring ring. off her finger yeah that's like the love scene in this movie yeah and it's like yeah like okay did you find it like just nasty I I have so much problem with the with just the these characters at this point <laughs> because I feel bad for Kimmy but Kimmy's irritating. Dermot Mulroney is like, oh man, you know, <laughs> he said, she said, we are done. <laughs> and meanwhile, Julia, I was like, yay, I ruined your life and now you're mine. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm having I'm feeling very torn about this movie at this point. I'm like, when is Rupert Everett coming back? Because please, Rupert Everett, show up again, steal this movie away from these awful characters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he does show up again. All right. Thank so God. the next day, um, Jules is off to the brunch before the wedding because Michael hasn't told anybody. Like nobody said like, hey, we're calling this wedding off. So everything's going off as planned. Um, so Jules checks on Kim. And Do you buy that? What? I've n- I've not I haven't been to a wedding like this, but I've I've heard about weddings. It's like oh man, like we had a huge fight and she admitted to having an affair with my best man. So it's over, it's over, and it it ends. You know, it's like they don't go along. Like well, we you know we we bought we pay for the catering. And they okay. and it's and it's New England shrimp. No, no, <laughs> like no, it's as soon as people say okay, it's but over. Michael tells her it's over, but she doesn't tell her parents because. She's hoping he ch- he's going to change his mind because she doesn't know about this email thing, right? She's 20. I guess it checks out. I mean, it kind of does. She's a child. Yeah. So she's just hoping that Michael will change his mind. And this is where we get the creme brulee speech, which, uh, I, which I always thought was really funny. Yeah. How is he? Well, he's sort of wondering why you haven't told your parents that the wedding's off. I'm still hoping for a miracle, I suppose. 
I mean, how could he think that my father and I would do such a thing? I only minored in psych, you understand. Maybe Michael couldn't commit to this marriage, so he created a delusion, produced an unconscious psychosomatic manifestation of... of uh, I'm better with food. <laughs> okay. You're Michael. You're in a fancy French restaurant. You order creme brulee for dessert. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's irritatingly perfect. Suddenly, Michael realizes he doesn't want creme brulee. He wants something else. What does he want? Jello. Jello? Why does he want jello? Because he's comfortable with jello. Jello makes him comfortable. I realize compared to creme brulee, it's jello, but maybe that's what he needs. I could be jello. No. Creme brulee can never be jello. You could never be jello. Have to be jello. You're never gonna be jello. It's funny. Hmm. You don't like that speech? You're never gonna be Jello. You know, you could trade out the words creme brulee and Jello with God and Satan, and it would still work. <laughs> yeah, but it's funnier with creme brulee and Jello. Indeed. All right. So now Jules is now she's just going back and forth between the two of them, being like the go-between. And um, she tells Michael, like, Kim still loves him. And he's like, well, tell her I'll marry her now. So now I guess the wedding's back on. Wouldn't Julia Roberts at some point just be like, this is so irritating. I made it very, very easy for him. And Kimmy, like, it's yeah. the fact that they're so good. Like, these are stupid people. I need to get <laughs> out of here. Okay. I have a best, I have a gay best friend who I can irritate and work for and irritate some more. Like, I have, I got all this I got a whole, I got all these, I got, there's a McDonald's opening. I got to go and write about it. Like I've got so much going on in my life. Why am I still wasting my time? These are stupid people. I mean, yeah, you have a point there. I don't know why. Because if I was going back and forth between, you know, between two people, like the girl I want to be with and the guy I'm pretending to like, and they're still carrying this thing on <laughs> on the second day. But like, this is, you guys are idiots. You deserve each I'm other. I'm out of here. Good. I'm not even going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to take some shrimp here. I'm going to take some shrimp. <laughs> I'm put it in my pocket and I'm out of here. <laughs> my pocket. Okay. So she, um, so the wedding's back on, but then Jules finally comes clean with Michael. Finally. And she kisses him, but then Kimmy sees, and now we have our big chase scene. I hate this crap so much. <laughs> Instead of letting them have a conversation, like human beings on planet Earth, it's always going to be like, oh, I see you, Kizzy. No, it's not what it looks like. Yeah, so. Um, Got a chaser, and then Ain't No Mountain High Enough plays in the soundtrack. And okay, but this it's is. It's a foot chase, and then it's an auto chase. Yes, because Jules, Jules ends up in a bread truck. <laughs> chasing michael who's chasing kim and she calls george while this is happening well george is at a uh, book reading yeah. by harry Shear. Yes. yes yes and this again everybody you know she's like it is not going well and george is like so michael's chasing kim 
Yeah. And you're chasing Michael. Yeah. He's like, who's chasing you? No one. Get it? And I think that was the line that they put in later to make the audience like feel bad for her. <laughs> but do they? They shouldn't. Because he's like, you are not the one. Yeah, I don't understand how audiences could hate Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction, but like love Julia Roberts in this movie. Well, I really don't that's get a good, it. That's a good point. That is some double-sided crap right there. Well, so then Michael goes to the train station and she sees him, Jules sees him, and, and she confesses to writing the email. And he takes her confession like too well. I mean, he basically calls her like pawn scum. But he forgives her right away. It's cutesy wootsy. It's like no. He, this he's is- like he's like wow. Like you basically ruined my life. But thanks for loving me that much. Like what are you talking about? Yeah, it's insane. It really is. So if I'd found out that my best friend and best friend being someone I used to have in a relationship with had been lying to me the whole time, had mm-hmm. been really just trying to sabotage the person I was trying to marry the entire time. Yeah. We are not friends anymore. I'm not talking to that person anymore. Yeah. I'm going to be working on writing a restraining order <laughs> immediately. <laughs> oh, but then they, so they split up to find Kim and Jules finds her like at the ballpark and they have the bathroom com- confrontation. I hate these scenes so you know, much. Like, she's like, you, you kissed him. On my wedding day, and all the women in the bathroom are like, cat fight. <laughs> the hell do you think you are? Cat fight! You came here pretending to be my friend, and I made you my maid of honor. Who asked you to do that? You knew me, what, eight minutes? Michael trusted you, so I trusted you. You wanted to keep me close. You didn't trust me for a second. I was right. Well, of course you were right, but that's not my fault. You kissed him! this man and there's no way that I'm going to give him up to some two-faced big-haired food critic oh man and they all stand around and they all watch it and all the all the extras in the scene are totally giving it they're like playing these like types like yeah yeah you tell him you tell her girl yeah yeah but then they make up and they start to applaud which is I know. The most insane thing. But like, no, punch her in the face. I know. And then she's like, I'd really like to get you the church so you can marry the man of our dreams. Our dreams. Oh, my gosh. We're back in Thrillerville again. Wow. Like, if anybody said that to me That's like, like on a, my wedding day, I'd be like, oh, my gosh. This is, I think. Like, this is uh, the hand that rocks yes, the cradle. Yes. Yes. It is. It's nuts. <sighs> okay. So they do get married. Michael and Kenny. And to my astonishment, Julia Roberts is there. Yeah, she's still the maid of honor. After she ruined their freaking lives and lied viciously to both of them for, what, 48 hours? She's still there. like four days. Four days, (laughs) almost a week. She's in the wedding. It's insane. (sighs) And then she even does give a speech at the wedding reception. Oh, my gosh. Like, don't give that chick the mic. Yeah, because she's like, I had a terrible dream that some psycho was trying to break you two up. Like... Again, making it about herself on their wedding day. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. And then she says, I gift you this song until you find your own. Yeah. It's her song, right? Her yes. song with him. Yeah. yeah. Awful. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. So then like the, the crazy cousins sing it. Can you imagine if like my ex 
was, you know, in this situation and she's like standing up giving a speech at our wedding. She's like, until you and Barry have your own song, I'm going to give you our song, which is Who Let the Dogs Out? (laughs) Who Let the Dogs Out? Hold it, cherish it, and make it your own until you find your own song. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And and he just looks at her with like tears in his eyes like this is the greatest gift like, you could this, ever give me. This movie has not earned these these emotions that it's trying trying to force on us. Yeah. 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 And then um so they leave for their reception and then you know, he comes back and like gives her a hug and says goodbye and it's like Re- realistically he goes up to her whispers in his ear, "Never talk to me again. <laughs> goodbye." Forever, you freaking psychopath. <laughs> you are pond scum. Goodbye. Do you think that's what he whispers in her ear? And then she's like, aw. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Knowing him, he's such a dope. He's probably like, call me. Let's go camping this weekend. Oh, my gosh. So now we have Jules at the reception. And, and then there's the sequel, My Best Friend's Honeymoon. No. It just keeps on going. No. but then- It's in Yosemite. <laughs> and they're camping, and Julie Roberts is camping right next to them. And then Rupert Everett shows up as like a, you know, like dressed like a Canadian Mountie. <laughs> Jules, you have to give it up. It's not working. No, this is a terrible sequel idea. Um, okay, but George... My best friend's anniversary. Stop. <laughs> just keep it going. <laughs> and like, Kimmy just like can't get rid of her. She's like, why is she at all of our like, you know, celebrations? Okay, so let's let's finish this up because then we should talk about the alternative ending because Yeah, um, yeah, there's a few of those. Julianne is, is you know, the phone rings and it's George and he's like, So did you, you know, did you get your guy? And she's like, No, I did what I came to do. I said goodbye. And then he's like describing her and what she's wearing and she's like, Oh, I know he's here and then there he is. He's at the reception. A better movie? Better movie, smarter movie, the horror movie version would be this is the part where we learn that George has been a figment of her imagination in her mind the entire film. (laughs) He's not real. And that whole sing-along scene, it was even more weird because she's like talking to someone who's not even there. And they all just sang along with her anyway. That's why Michael's looking at her like, huh? Oh my gosh. That would be hilarious. George is a figment of her imagination. Yes, he's you, not really you, there. He's the, the perfect movie. gay best friend. <gasps> he's the he's the white woman's fantasy. Ooh, yeah, that was that for some subtext. Yeah, this is a horror film in disguise, ladies and gentlemen. I w- I would watch that if somebody like recut this film to be a horror film. And by the way, this this would be the easiest film to recut as a horror film. Sleepless in Seattle and Mary Poppins have nothing on this movie. <laughs> this film is so already there. You just change the music, you do some little snippety snips, and this movie's a horror film outright. Yeah. Yeah. It's messed up. So George is like, he's like, you know, there might not be love or marriage or sex, but by God, there will be dancing. Uh, What a terrible, terrible final line. So (laughs) corny. You know, so then we shall dance together. So they dance the night away Uh. and that's the ending. Oh, so our protagonist slash antagonist, um, she gets a consolation prize. Her best friend, yeah. yay! Yay! Who's also her boss? So it really is my best friend's wedding. If it's if it's if it's his perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so you and I were talking about how this film had a different. This film was ending. a disaster um, in the making. This is a very famous case, um, as you and I have spoken about before in this show. I I don't I don't love the test audience process. I don't because in so many cases it's like, okay, like the audience score is this way, so then the studio steps forward like, hey, we're we're the ones investing all this money, so like we got to change this, we got to fix that, we got to make it work. And, you know, in a lot of cases, like it, it, it could just do, do damage to the film if the, if the director himself does not have final cut. This was a situation where the director, P.J. Hogan, he himself recognized like this movie is not working. We have a huge problem here. They had test screenings of this movie. The audience was hating Julia Roberts' character. Like she is despicable. She's the star of the movie. We're paying her a fortune to be in this movie. And and it is, it's not working out at all. The audience is not on her side. You know, it's a, it was a huge problem. And the Rupert Everett character was very small. But what they found out in the test screening process is that the audience was loving Rupert Everett, not really liking Julia Roberts at all. So one of the things that they did when it came to reshoots, which took place much later, um, this is one of those films where, I mean, they, I think they shot most of it in 95, but then in 96, it's like, we got we to gotta work on this thing because this thing, we can't release it right now. So they beefed up the Rupert Everett role substantially. He used to be a very small supporting role and then he became like one of the main ensemble characters. So yeah, the whole part where he comes and they pretend to be engaged. That's that a was huge all part added. of the film. Huge. Yeah, the song, to add that. everything. And by the way, like you know, whatever, it's, it's a total contrivance out of like three's company, but you know what? That part of the movie, it sure it works because he brings a completely different energy. Um, you know, Cameron Diaz She's very good in this movie, but it is very one note. She's playing manic, top to bottom. DeMont Moroni is very low-key. And Julia Roberts kind of ranges from like histrionics or just kind of this, you know, the thing that she does, which is to smile incessantly. So Rupert Everett shows up and like his – everything, his energy is so different. I mean he really just it, – it's a very easy film for, for him to steal and he does it brilliantly. Okay, but I wanted to talk about the ending because originally you said – that Julianne ended up with Michael. And that's not what happened. Michael and Kimmy were always going to end up together. It's just that after they left for their honeymoon, who shows up to be the love interest for Julianne, but a different guy? What's his face? It originally was John Corbett. Yes, John Corbett of Sex and the City fame. Well, this is 97. So I don't even think Sex and the City was on. I think this is John Corbett of, of Northern Exposure at this point. Oh. Yeah. So at this point, he was a character actor, but not a household name. What, had he been in my big fat Greek wedding yet? No, that's 2002. Oh. This is before, by the way, this is before he became the Laurence Olivier of wedding comedies. Wow. Yeah. So kind of a no name at the time. At this point, yeah, again, he's known as a he had a really colorful supporting role as a DJ on Northern Exposure, a show I loved. Okay, so audiences hated the fact that Julia Roberts like wreaks havoc and tries to sabotage everything and then at the end meets like a new guy and is supposedly going to now have like a second chance at love. Did they show this movie to like an audience of like from a Pentecostal church like boo we re- we resist your happiness sinner boo No, you will I, not get happiness at the end. No, I think they just showed it to like regular people who were like she's terrible. No. But I love that. I mean it it speaks to like I mean, I completely agree. This is a character who's been doing terrible things the whole movie. You're not getting the consolation prize of John Corbett. Yeah, exactly. So they took him completely out and they brought back 
George, and they're like, you get your gay best friend. Yeah, Rupert Everett, I mean, his stuff really got beefed up. They really, they altered the role in the editing. They they added more scenes. And famously, they started to, to show the movie to audiences. And suddenly, it's like, wow, not only did the scores go way the heck up, but we're now feeling like this is a summer movie. We're gonna, this is going to be Christmas or like Valentine's Day. Like, let's release it in the summertime. And it wound up being a gigantic hit. And Roberts had this movie, I think, in June. And then in July, a conspiracy theory came out. And suddenly, she was on top again. Okay, so the test audience did actually do this movie a service. In this case, yeah. In this case. Yes, they did. You know. But I would make the argument that this film still needs work. Oh, yeah. I I think P.J. Hogan needs to take this movie back for another spin. Yeah, get rid of the whole corporate espionage subplot. uh, Cut the line of, like, you know, he's our man. Yeah, marry the man of our dreams. That line needs to go. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of stuff in this film that I just... You know, I, I can appreciate that they're trying to make something that's not the typical romantic comedy. The musical numbers, I think, work. There's a scene where a bunch of boys are sitting around a helium machine. Oh, my gosh. I love And they that start scene. singing a John Denver song. It's a total non sequitur. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. But it's so funny because it's so absurd. And I think that those are the moments where it's like, okay, PJ Hogan was the right guy for this because this this movie isn't really playing by the rules. And I really love that. But there are other times where it's like... I like how bold this movie is, and I love these actors because these actors are really doing great work, but these characters are almost impossible to root for. And this story at its core is really ugly. Yeah. Would you give uh, Michael more of a personality? I think a smarter movie would establish that Michael and George um, either are secret friends or used to be friends. Mm. And so he talks to him in secret and private. I would establish, I would allow that to happen because Dermot really so George doesn't have is, is like playing both sides. Sure, why oh. not? He's a jerk, and George is a jerk. He's a jerk. Oh no 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 no! Michael, Michael's a jerk. Oh, I was Michael, like, no. George is not a jerk. George is the same. George is a good guy, but it's also a problem of a lot of movies during this time. Like this is the gay best friend whose only existence is basically just to be the best friend for for Julia Roberts. I mean, you know, like. A decade later, Judy Greer would basically pick up the mantle as like the best friend of every female lead in every romantic comedy. Yeah. And you're going, why, why doesn't I mean, Judy Greer start this? I agree with you, but I feel like they give George enough of a character. They don't. Who's, who's, who's he living with? He clearly has a boyfriend he lives with and they got these really nice dinner parties. What's that about? Why is George going to a Harry Shearer book reading? Like, because he's cultured. Okay, but we the character is interesting enough he's that we should editor. we should have more scenes of him because he's fantastic. And if he is her moral center, it's like the con- the contrast that Rupert Everett and his character bring to the movie is always welcome because otherwise this is about a bunch of whiny people. <laughs> These three annoying whiny people. Okay, so would you change this this ending? Because you wouldn't do the John Corbett ending. Again, I would edit this whole thing into a horror film and I would make it that Rupert Everett was always a figment of Julia Roberts' imagination. Yeah. Yeah. So that's okay. that's how I would alter this movie. That as, would be as really it, funny, actually. I used to love this film when it came out. I really did. I thought, oh, this is great because it's not really what I expected. And there were just so many bland, typical romantic comedies at this time. It stood out for being different. Looking at this movie now, 
Um, I think it's still rife with problems, but the performances, particularly Rupert Everett's, are strong enough to elevate it over that. And the fact that P.J. Hogan is doing something special. I still think his best movie is Peter Pan, for the record, the 2003 Peter Pan. That's my favorite Peter Pan movie adaptation. So, My Best Friend's Wedding, I'll give it two and a half stars. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so good. It's a good film with good stuff and good scenes, but I think it's, I think it still needed a few chops at the editing room. I will give it three stars because my sister and I still quote that film often. Um, and I did laugh out loud quite a few times. But everything you said, totally valid. And I would love to see a horror movie version. <laughs> Just for my own amusement. Is this your favorite Julia Roberts film? No. What's your favorite Julia Roberts movie? No, no. I think Notting Hill is way better. I agree. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a sharp movie. Yeah, yeah, that movie is great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Hugh Grant... And that movie is playing a character with a with an inner life. Yeah. And he's nice and I'm rooting for him. And he knows a good thing when he has it. It's not this, you know, it's not this romantic triangle that's completely contrived. Um, and Julia Roberts' character in that movie goes through a better character arc. I, you know, I don't know Julia Roberts and I don't pretend to know her. And, you know, I can't pretend like I know all this stuff about her because all this gossipy crap I've read about over the years. But, you know, the consensus when that film came out was that she's playing a version of herself if that's even remotely true, it's impressive because there's a vulnerability to that performance that I really liked mm-hmm. and it really responded to. Because again, I, I've never been a fan of her work. Um, in, in, in a lot of cases, it's the movies. I just, I don't think Sleeping with the Enemy is that great. I'd certainly, you know. Oh, I love that movie. And you know how I feel about Pretty Woman. I'm, I've never been a fan of Pretty Woman. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah. And yeah, for the most part, like, the, and she's picked interesting directors to work with, but for the most part, I, I just... Yeah, I've not been a fan, but Notting Hill, I think, is her best vehicle. Yeah, yeah, I would agree, and I and I like quirky British characters. I mean, the characters that play his family, hysterical. Yeah, there's yeah. great stuff in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that film I think really casts a spell. Um, this film does not, <laughs> and it tries hard. It tries so hard, but yeah, no, can't do it. All right. Well, I think that concludes our discussion of my best friend's wedding. Something borrowed, something blue. Good night, folks. <laughs>